Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here's Dickow from the deep corner for three. Uh-oh, uh-oh. It's on now. Downtown Dan connects. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. I mean, I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow for SB Live Sports. Today's is a very fun episode for me. It's one of my favorite players from growing up, somebody that I used to watch closely. If you've ever read an article or heard me in an interview, there are three point guards usually that I talk about of being guys that I used to love watching as a kid growing up. John Stockton with the obvious Gonzaga ties. Rod Strickland with his time in Portland because I grew up there, and today's guest, Mark Price. Mark, I appreciate you joining. Um, you've moved back to the Atlanta area. Hopefully, all is well with you and your family. We are. You're doing well. Uh, trying to get used to, uh, you know, empty nest syndrome. And uh, our youngest, uh, believe it or not, just graduated from college. And so, uh, yeah, we're. Uh, and it also makes me feel old when you tell me. Uh, you watched me growing up, so I appreciate that, Dan. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm starting to get a few people saying that I'm old. I just turned 43 years old. I'm not going to ask you your age, but when I look at kind of my youth experience of watching the game growing up, one of the things that I remember about you is one of the greatest shooters of all time in NBA history one of the great pick-and-roll players in the late 80s, early 90s in the NBA. Where did your love for the game come from, and how did you develop those skills early on? Well, I think my love uh, for the game kind of came naturally. Uh, I grew up in a basketball home. Uh, my dad was a, was a coach my whole life. Uh, he actually played uh, basketball at the University of Oklahoma and, and uh, you know, went on to become a coach. We coached at every level, high school and, uh, you know, college. Uh, two years when I was about 10 years old, we just took to the Phoenix Suns for two years. And, and uh, I just loved it. I remember my mom kind of, you know, telling me stories that even back then, you know, like most 10-year-olds were, you know, running around the, the top of the gym and, and playing tag and trying to get ice cream and stuff. And she said, I would like to sit in those games and watch like every second and then go home and try to emulate. Of course, I revealed my age for when I was really watching guys like Dixon Arsdale and guys like that that played for the Phoenix Suns. But, uh, you know, I just fell in love with it at an early age and, uh, you know, had to overcome not not growing into the sport, to say. I wasn't the biggest guy in the world, but, uh, you know, was able to develop. My dad was kind of a stickler on shooting, free throw shooting, and so uh, he was constantly – tweaking stuff with my shot uh, and it must have worked because I, I was able to shoot it pretty well but uh, you know I just fell in love with it at an early age and just tried to become the best player I could and like I said had to overcome many obstacles to achieve and, and get to the place that I got to I mean I was literally 155 pounds 
soaking wet coming out of high school. So I was I was rather under the radar, uh, so to speak, uh, in recruiting circles. And Bobby Crimmins had just got the job at Georgia Tech and took a flyer on me, uh, and it worked out well for both of us. Well, there's a lot of things that I want to follow up with that that answer there, but the the one that comes to mind quickly is Bobby Kremens as a coach. Um, my experience, I've had two experiences with Bobby Kremens, and I'd like to get your insight on him as a coach and his mindset. So, when I was a sophomore at the University of Washington, we played Georgia Tech in uh, the University of it would have been the Hawaii Hilo tournament, the big Island invitational. I started, I was battling foot injuries. Uh, I really didn't do much that game. I remember the day after that game, we flew from Hilo to uh, Honolulu for connecting flights. Georgia tech was on the same flight. Bobby Kremens was sitting across me in the aisle and I had just started against his team the day before. And he asked me if I was a manager for the UW team. Cause I had the, the gear on. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that clearly to this day. Did he always kind of have that kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe not necessarily in tuneness to him because that stuck with me and that drove me uh, throughout the rest of my college career that, hey, a coach I just played against didn't even realize I was on the floor. I got to get better. <laughs> yeah, Bobby. Uh... He's definitely a different dude. Uh, you know, he's he's not always tuned in. You know, no, no doubt about that. But uh, I had a great experience playing for him. He uh, one thing that he he was extremely competitive. Uh, he wanted to win more than anything, and I was built that same way. And although we we kind of came from different worlds, I mean, he was a New York City guy. Uh, he didn't think anybody could play out of New York City. Matter of fact, when his assistant saw me play after my junior year in high school at a, at a tournament in Florida, the first time I'd never even heard of AAU basketball. It was just starting to kind of get going at that time. And uh, there was a guy out of Oklahoma City that said, hey, we got some guys. I'm going to take you and Wayman Tisdale and some other guys. And we're going to go down to Florida. There's going to be a bunch of coaches there. You might get seen. I said, sounds good to me because I wasn't getting recruited at all. Like I said, I was 5'11", 155 pounds. And, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't on anybody's <laughs> boards. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But uh, we went out there. We uh, almost won the whole thing. Our team was a little good. We had some really talented players. We ended up playing Chris Mullen and uh, his guys in New York City in the finals. And, uh, you know, caught the attention of – uh, George Felton, who was Bobby Kerman's assistant at the time, and uh, he told Bobby, he said, I found our point guard because they had to find somebody under the radar because Georgia Tech was so bad at the time. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I found our guy. And Bobby says, I ain't going out to Florida to recruit a kid. He goes, no, Bobby, it's better than that. This kid's from Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that kind of started it all. But, uh and Bobby, I think, sent every assistant to come see him first because he didn't believe George. And, you know, it wasn't until all of them said, you better go see him play <laughs> before Bobby actually came out and saw me play. But uh, it ended up being a great situation uh, for me. I came in with John Sally uh, together, and uh, we were able to build something really special. I mean, we went, literally went from the worst team in the league our freshman year to win the conference championship our junior year. So it was, a, it was a quite a ride. And, uh, you know, 
Bobby Crummins, he was uh, he was a huge part of that. Yeah, I remember uh, Georgia Tech being a power starting with you, although that was this phase of my youth that I was just starting to, you know, watch college basketball a little bit. But he was tremendous with Kenny Anderson and, and that group with Brian Oliver and, and Dennis Scott. Come full circle with Coach Kremens. I got to meet him at a cancer event here in Spokane years later. And during my time in Atlanta with the Hawks, we were able to play around a round of golf together at East Lake. How has your maybe relationship with, with Bobby Kremens evolved over time? Do you get out on the golf course or did you get out on the golf course with him at any of the great courses in, in Georgia? And I'm kind of pushing, do you have an in at Augusta National by chance? I wish I did. Uh, I can probably get us in a lot of places. Augusta's not one of them, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, I've played a lot of golf with Bobby. We, we've stayed extremely close over the years. Uh, we talk often. Uh, he lives in Hilton South Carolina right now and, uh, you know, kind of enjoying retired life and doing, doing what he wants. But it's, uh, you know, it's been one of those things, I think, when, when you go through, uh, you know, we, we, we were at the beginning of that whole uh, building program. And I think when you go through that and you go through the difficult times early, and then you end up, you know, by the time we were senior, we were preseason number one pick in the country going into our senior year. And that's a, that's a pretty fast meteoric rise, you know, in, in, in the world of college sports, especially playing in the ACC because it was so difficult. But um, so I think when you go through those things, I, there, we just have that special relationship of kind of what we were able to do together and help build over the years and, we stay close. Well, a lot of times your mentorship as a basketball player in your, your early years as a great youth coach, yours sounds like it was your father who was a coach at different levels. Is that where you kind of got the coaching bug that when you were done with playing, you knew you wanted to get in coaching and have a similar impact on players at, at different levels? Because I know you've coached high school, college, and you've been in the NBA as well. Yeah, it, it's funny because uh, initially when I quit playing, I didn't really have much of a desire to, to get into coaching, uh, basically because I kind of watched my dad do it all those years, and I, I knew uh, I knew what a grind it was. Plus, I had uh, three small kids at the time, and I knew what a grind coaching was, and I wasn't ready to jump in with both feet at that, at that particular stage of my life. But uh, I began, you know, Basketball kind of kept calling me in different ways. I began, uh, I created a shooting lab in, in a facility here in Atlanta called the Mark Price Shooting Lab. And I began, you know, teaching people, kind of using, uh, taking some technology and doing some different things and kind of how they look at a golf swing, kind of taking that approach with shooting. And we created a little lab and uh, NBA teams, colleges, guys started showing up and really liked liked what we did and we were having a lot of success which kind of led to uh, you know teams atlanta being here local when i was first doing it finally taught me into kind of coming over and i said well, look i don't want to travel but i'll come i'll be down there every day with you guys when you're home and all that and i did that with the hawks for two years and kind of started catching the coaching bug at that point and, uh, and then you know went on to Stan Van Gundy called me when he was in Orlando and just kind of kind of start doing the coaching thing at that, at that level. 
You were a four-time All-Star, and this was at a time when, you know, there was tremendous point guard play in the league. You had John Stockton, you had Terry Porter, you had Rod Strickland, you had Tim Hardaway. Um, who were some of your toughest matchups uh, throughout the course of your career? Well, um, you know, we were in the same division with uh, Detroit and obviously the great Isaiah Thomas. Uh, so we played each other about six times a year. And so that was a, that was a huge rivalry. And he obviously was such a great player. And so I knew, uh, I always knew I had to bring my age. I think, you know, when, when we played those guys, but, you know, I came into the league a little bit and won a lot of scoring point guards. Matter of fact, I was probably, you know, other than Magic Johnson and Isaiah, I was, you know, after about my second year in the league, I was probably, you know, probably the third highest scoring point guard in the league. Uh, point guards were more, you know, no cheeks kind of role when I first got into the league, kind of run the team, you know. The three-point shot wasn't as used as often as it, as it is now, obviously. But but uh, I was a scorer coming in from college, and I think that's why I had such a great relationship with Lenny Wilkins, uh, who was my coach. He was Hall of Fame, fame player and coach. And, and he loved, I think a lot of people kind of, you know, thought I was a two-guard and a point-guard's body, you know. But uh, Lenny, I think, really saw the advantages, and he really took advantage of my skill set. And I think he understood and knew that I could grow in the other parts of the game. And even though, you know, I was shoot first kind of in college because I had to score for us to win, I still had the ability to play out of the pick and roll, to make the plays, make the passes, see the floor. Um you know, but yet I was such a threat, it really stretched the defenses to the point where it opened up opportunities to, to do other things. I don't like to be one of those old players who thinks that, hey, my game would have translated better into today's game because it's more free-flowing, more pick-and-roll. I, I will say this, I couldn't guard anybody. Uh, <laughs> that was one of my absolute weaknesses. Uh, you put a chair out there, and I might have a, have a struggle guarding the guy. But uh, I took pride in my skill set. I took pride in my IQ, uh, the, the fact that I thought I could run a team. When you look at today's game, is there something that you find refreshing in watching, or uh, do you prefer the era that you played in? Well, I mean, obviously, like you said, I think my game would have certainly translated tremendously the way they play now. Uh, to open, not being able to be physical, not being able to touch a guy, you know, to kind of really get up as many three-pointers as you want again type mentality uh, would have been right up my alley. Uh, but that being said, I, for me, and, you know, it can always be just kind of gets into this. I try not to get into the old school, new school mentality too much because I know things change in the game. The game changes in, in a lot of ways. But I miss the, I miss the all-round game. I just, you know, I was fortunate and blessed to play in an era where I mean. Everybody, almost every team had a legitimate low post scoring threat. Uh, we, we had Brad Doherty. I mean, we used to go through the list. Patrick Ewing, Elijah Wines, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I mean, Robert Parrish and Bob. I mean, just you went, you go down the list, and it was a lot more of inside out, outside in. Uh, just I felt like usage of the whole court, and that's kind of how I grew up. I mean, I didn't have a three-point line until I got to the NBA. 
And so, you know, I think, and I tell people this all the time, if I was in charge of the game of basketball, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow the three-point line to be used, you know, until later on in the stages, just because I think kids, it, it, I think it limits their development because we just grew up, if you're open from 10 feet, you took the shot. If you're open from 20 feet, you took the shot. Or, you know, if it was open to take it in, it wasn't this got to be a layup, got to be a three, you know, or, or a free throw. Uh, and I kind of miss just the beauty of the mid-range and all that. I mean, there were so many great players. And, and it's nice to see guys even now like Kawhi and guys like that that still have that mid-range game and that, that are so effective with it. So, you know, at times I think, and this is my opinion, it gets a little boring watch, watching 100 threes go up. Every game. I mean, it's just, and even though I'm a three point shooter, uh, but uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you know, they got the, all the different, you know, diagnostics and you know, analytics and all the other things now that they try to create. But I just think there's something to the rhythm of the game of basketball that's beautiful and being able to read things. And you know, if you got a better shot, you have to take the three all the time. You know, it's just, just one of my little things, but you know, it's uh, it is what it is. There's a lot of great players, you know, fun to watch, Steph Curry and Dan Lloyd and all those guys that uh, can shoot the fire out of the ball. But uh, yeah, I, I enjoy the beauty of the all round game. Yeah, I like that, and I also I, I agree with you to a certain extent. When I watch the game now, I'll see guys that are taking seven, eight threes a game, and I'm scratching my head thinking. Good Lord, that's probably not your strength, but that's the way the game is played now. And it's, as you mentioned, it's paint touches with layups, it's threes, and then it's play with force to get to the free throw line uh, built built off of analytics. And I personally, there's parts of me that like it, but I'm, I'm waiting and I'm hoping for the trend to get back to a blend of the two um, because I think that's where you find a perfect marriage in the game, similar to what Kawhi Leonard has done. You know, he takes – the best available shot on that particular possession. Exactly. I, I agree with you, Tango. I would love to see, you know, see the same thing. I would just love to see a little bit more balance uh, in the game. But, uh, you know, I think it I think it eventually come. It just seems to kind of come in waves. The game changes. But the first team that, you know, wins two or three championships and three points and corners aren't their number one deal. Everybody has to start looking to play the same way. It's just the tendency of the game, especially at the NBA level, to kind of copy what's working at the time. How about you and I were both undersized guards. Um, obviously, you had a much better career than, than I did, but I, I had to look up to players like yourself, John Stockton, that had to overcome the perception of being too small or uh, not strong enough, maybe not quick enough and athletic enough. What's your message to, to guards that you recruited when you were at college? Or maybe what's the message to guards that, that you come in, in, in contact with now? Because I'm sure you get asked your, your opinion or your help at, at many different stages of players in their careers. Well, I think, uh, you know, the biggest thing that I've ever shared is because I was, because I was smaller, you know, you talked about it earlier, you know, developing your skills is such a crucial, you, you just can't, you can't have obvious weaknesses, you know, when you're a smaller guard. I mean, 
the, the better you are at everything, you know, the better chance you're going to have a success. I, I just remember my dad, you know, one thing he always told me when I was, you know, developing as a young player was he was saying, you know, however many times you go right, you know, in practice, make sure you go that many times left. Using both hands, you know, getting comfortable, all of, you know, getting comfortable on, you know, because there's so many guys that, you know, they, they're only feel comfortable from one spot on the floor, shooting or, or whatever you can pick up. And that's, that's how I played as a player. One of the first things I always did against the opponent was try to pick up his weakness as soon as I possibly could. And then make him, make him play through his weaknesses. And I think, obviously, the better you are at your all-around game, uh, the tougher it's going to be uh, to defend you. Do you have a favorite teammate that, that you played with amongst the course of your career? I know uh, sometimes it might be somebody who was undervalued by the media, undervalued by the, the fans, or, or just somebody that you knew had your back as a teammate and was going to be there in the biggest of moments and the most important of moments. Well, I, I tell people this all the time. I, I was blessed to have a lot of really good teammates. You know, over the course of my you know, college career and my NBA career, uh, but probably if I had to pick one guy, uh, be my all-time favorite it would probably be Larry Nance, who I played with in Cleveland. And Larry was kind of like you said; he wasn't necessarily the first guy everybody thought of in the the Cavs. You know, it was either me or Brad Doherty or Ben Harper's or Mila. But Larry was this. Uh, we were we were really young team. Uh, we all came in together, and our first year, and at the end of it, they made the trade. Uh, at the start of my second year, when we traded Kevin Johnson, who they had drafted, and I was able to beat Kevin out in, in training camp. And they swapped with Phoenix and gave Kevin to Phoenix, and we got Larry. And uh, and Larry was just amazing. Uh, not only was he terrific, he was an all-star player, but uh, just his presence, you know, on our team, he was just a great teammate. He, uh, he was one of those guys that had a nickname for everybody, you know, on the team. And he was the one making the rookies go get them donuts. And, I mean, it was just, you know, he just had a way, you know, he had guys over to his house all the time. And, and uh, you know, he was just an amazing teammate. He was, I just always knew he had my back, you know, like you. I, I was a solid defender, but, you know, I got beat. On, on occasions, <laughs> uh, the only time Larry would get mad at me is if I fouled a guy after he beat me because he was like, "Don't do that! I got you back. I'm gonna pop a shot at the rim." <laughs> so uh, you know, he was just—he uh, was one of those guys, and we're still close today. We stay in touch, and obviously, he's had a blast over the last few years with his son Larry Jr. playing for Cleveland and getting to go to all the games. But, uh, but yeah, he was just. Uh, he just made made the game fun. Uh, you know, he was a great teammate. He was, uh, he was all about that. You mentioned Kevin Johnson was a teammate early in your career. I believe uh, a Portland native, one of the other guys that I looked up to, Terrell Brandon, was a teammate of yours for, for some time. Uh, Terrell and I have texted and we're, I'm hoping to get him on this podcast at some point. Um how does the dynamic of supporting yet competing against your teammates uh, work at the NBA level for, for guys who are truly kind of 
entrenched as a starting caliber player because for me I was kind of always on that eighth ninth man where unfortunately too many times I looked at the starter of wanting his minutes Um, but how does that truly work for the betterment of all players involved in a situation that you had with both those guys well they were two uh two different kind of situations Uh, Kevin Johnson was a lottery pick after my rookie year and my rookie year was real up and down. I bat, I was a backup for Cleveland my rookie year, and I had an appendix out halfway through the season. And so I wasn't in great shape the rest of the year. And so I was really up and down. And I could tell that they probably weren't 100% sold on me at that point. And being the backup, uh, John Bagley was the point guard at the time. I backed him up my first year, and then I drafted Kevin Johnson. And, and you, know, you know how it is in the league. If you draft somebody number six, <laughs> they're planning on playing yeah you know and so i'm thinking this is not looking real good teams don't keep three point guards uh and i remember one of the assistants i saw him over the summer said just put yourself back in shape show everybody what you can do he really believed in me and uh, i think this is an opportunity for you and so i, I kind of half looked at him like well, okay <laughs> all right but uh but it really was true. I guess they had plans to actually trade to John Bagley in the summer. And then Kevin Johnson was kind of negotiating his contract, and he shows up to camp like two weeks late. So for two weeks, I had the whole team just to myself, you know, and I had gotten myself in great shape, and I was playing out of my mind. When Kevin showed up, he had no shot. I mean, I was just – I was waiting for him. I was ready. And I never let him get there. And, uh, and people up in Cleveland talked about that. We went at each other every day. I mean, it was a battle. I was playing for my, my life, my career. Uh, he was trying to, you know, get that started spot. And uh, I beat him out. And to, to Lenny's credit, to Cleveland's credit, they, they allowed me to do that. You know, I, I tell people all the time, sometimes it doesn't matter how good you are, because I know you drafted and what opportunities you're going to get. But uh, they believed in me. Uh, we started playing really well, and that's when they made the trade. The Terrell Brandon one was a little different because by the time Terrell, get, and it was similar, Terrell was a highly drafted player as well, a great player at college at Oregon. And, uh, you know, but I was already there and I was situated and settled. And so Brandon, you know, Terrell, he played, played backup minutes, you know, for me uh, for about three years. And uh, I, I say this all the time. I mean, Terrell was a really good player. And he obviously showed that once he got his opportunity, you know. But the professionalism that he showed and that we, we never had issues. Um, Terrell really took it as an opportunity to try to learn because he saw what kind of success I was having. Uh, and although our games weren't totally similar, uh, but I've heard him speak and kind of talk about coming in and just watching me and learning. And, and uh, you know, that's not easy to do. Some guys don't handle that with the egos that come in. You're a guy averaging 30 points a game in college, and you're coming in, and your job is to not turn the ball over, <laughs> pass it to the best players, and, and, you know, shoot it if you're open. Uh, you know, it's a different role, but Terrell came in, he took hold of that. He was great for us coming on off the bench. And uh, when it was his time, he uh, he really took off and had a great career. 
Last question, Mark, before I let you go, and it's probably a question you get asked a lot. Craig Elo lives in Spokane. Um, I run into him quite frequently. I, I had to ask him this uh, on this podcast after the last dance with Michael Jordan came up. <laughs> I see that smile on your face there on the video. How difficult is it to, to this day when you watch that moment with the Michael Jordan hanging shot to knock uh, to beat Cleveland? Um, you know, from your perspective, Craig's is different because he was guarding him on that possession. But from your perspective, how difficult was that? And is it to see it over and over again these days? Well, for me, the for me, the shot itself is not is not really the difficult part of that because. I mean, Michael's a great player and great players are going to get great shots. My difficult thing is, is that we were such a better team in Chicago that year. I mean, we had literally beat them six times during the regular season, six and oh. I mean, they had no chance. And then I, I was hurt. I had a hamstring. I didn't even play in the first game of that series, which we lost. And we were just super banged up as a team. And yet we still through all that, it took a miracle shot to beat us, you know. But the, the disappointment for me is the overall is I just know how much better we were than the Bulls, you know. But Michael was Michael, and he had the opportunity, and when it was his opportunity, he made it. And that's the legend that he, he's left the game. But uh, but those were great series. Uh, people ask me about Chicago, and, you know, of course, you know, having to play against Michael, but those were some of the funnest times of my life. I mean, those were unbelievable series, and they were always very good, very competitive, and, and uh, down to the wire so many times. Well, Mark, I appreciate the time. It's been uh, great to connect. I know when I was with the Hawks, we talked a time or two. Um, as I mentioned, when we got started, you were one of those players that I looked up to as a kid growing up. Um, so it's, it was great today to get a chance to sit back and, and talk and, and hear a little bit more about your stories and your experiences. So thanks again for joining. Uh, my pleasure, Dan. It's always good to be here. Good luck. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.